Miles. 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 Guess what? Miles. Miles. What is it, Jay? I'm reading What If Wolverine Were Lord of the Vampires, and it's amazing. Is that a Curse of the Mutants thing? Is this what happens when Dracula follows his heart? No, it's actually an old what-if issue from the 80s, but honestly, I would say it's a really timeless story. I mean, it asks important questions like, how can we be certain vampires are not already in command of America's atomic arsenal? Oh man, that's... Actually, geez, that is definitely going to keep me up at night. Uh, So how does Wolverine become Lord of the Vampires anyway? How does anyone become Lord of the Vampires, Miles? Dracula bites him. Okay, but Dracula has bitten a lot of people. Most of them don't become Lord of the Vampires. Yeah, but most of those people don't have Wolverine's ability to resist Drac's mind control and then kill him and drink his evil legacy. Okay, fair point. But wait, is this the same timeline where Captain America is a werewolf? No. But there is one, right? I definitely remember Cap-Wolf being a thing. Oh, Cap-Wolf was absolutely a thing. So what alternate universe was he from? Alternate universe? No, no, no. Cap-Wolf is from 616. That's canon, buddy. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 149 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to an exciting time in non-comics X-Men history. We have another movie on its way. Not on its way, actually. As this airs, the movie will already have opened. Oh, right. I always forget about this recording ahead time travel thing we do. Yeah, so we actually haven't seen Logan yet. The trailers make it look super awesome, so I'm really psyched. Whether or not we'll have seen it by the time this episode airs remains in question since it opens in the middle of Emerald City Comic Con, and I'm sort of expecting that after hours we'll basically be drunk and or asleep and or like burning Seattle down. That seems entirely reasonable. But regardless, this seemed like a good time to cover the comic story that the movie seems to be mostly based on, that being Old Man Logan. So we've already talked about Old Man Logan a little bit on Sci-Fi Wire. You might have seen that already. I'll post a link to it in the visual companion to this episode. But that is the comic that Logan's based on, or at least the comic that it's most heavily based on. It also seems to draw pretty substantially from the 2X23 miniseries, or at least the first one. Right. So uh, today in this episode, we're going to go into a much more in-depth look at the original Old Man Logan storyline, since, you know, with Sci-Fi Wire, we just had like a few-minute video. And now we have all of your time. All of it. So Old Man Logan was a 2008 to 2009 story arc in Wolverine Volume 3. It was published in issues 66 to 72 and wrapped up in giant size Wolverine Old Man Logan, which is kind of a mouthful of a title. I say the more words, the better in your title. I want some, like, Street Fighter 2-level stuff. I want Super Turbo Hyper Fighting Championship Edition Wolverine. I'm sure there's already been a Deadpool book that did that. Yeah, probably true. And Wolverine has been in a lot of Capcom-related fighting games, so it all ties together, man. Wolverine is everywhere. He is. He is ubiquitous. But yeah, so this storyline, it's interesting to me. I think everyone assumes, I certainly did before I looked into it, that Old Man Logan started out as its own big event. But yeah, it was really just a story within the main book. Yeah, and this is written by Mark Millar and drawn by Steve McNiven. And I gotta say, it is my favorite Mark Millar by a wide, wide margin. He is a writer whose work I tend to really, really dislike. He's someone who I will go out of my way to avoid. But I love Old Man Logan. Yeah, I do too, or at least most of Old Man Logan. Like, 95% of it is incredibly good Wolverine stuff, and the rest is just a little weird. Well, specifically, seven-eighths of it (laughs) are, are pretty solid and... Well, no, I guess the giant size issue is giant size. Basically, I really like the issues that are part of the Wolverine ongoing series, but the giant size coda, I do not like. I think, honestly, not only is it sort of a gratuitous tacked on thing, but it it really detracts from what's otherwise a very, very strong ending. And we'll talk a lot about that as we get to that part of the story. Now, going in a bit more to who the creators are, so Mark Millar, you might be familiar with him from The Ultimates. He was the writer behind a lot of that, the sort of more aggressive, uh, macho, widescreen, explodey, and at times jingoistic version of the Avengers from the Ultimate Universe. Yeah, his party trick as a writer is basically toxic masculinity. Yeah, kind of sometimes that. Now, McNiven, he was the artist on Death of Wolverine, where he did a freaking phenomenal job. And in Old Man Logan, I think he also does a phenomenal job. He's a great artist for this. Yeah, he 
gives the story, I think, a lot of pathos and a lot of its sort of wistful, old-school Western feel. He and Millar are a very well-matched creative team. I mean, mm-hmm. I think he tones down with a, a more literal artist and one who was was taking cues more directly and literally from the script would be really obnoxious, and he makes it read as wry instead. Now, one interesting thing about the character... We mentioned that he first debuted in this uh, this Wolverine story. Technically, a version of him showed up even sooner, also written by Mark Millar. Ah, uh, yes, that would be the Hooded Man. I was the Hooded Man once. I had a hood and was a man, and there you have it. Yeah, it's not a very descriptive name. It's sort of like Matter Eater Lad. Like, yes, I also eat matter, Matter Eater Lad. <laughs> right. I'm, not, I'm not sure what most people eat. I guess the Phoenix eats stars. So this story was in Mark Millar's run of Fantastic Four. It involved an alternate future where the Hooded Man uh, teamed up with an aged Sue Storm to help save the universe. Later on, there was a Fantastic Force miniseries that followed up on this. We're not going to cover that now because, honestly, it's not all that relevant, but it does interest me that a future version of the Old Man Logan version of Logan, an old man Logan, if you will, appeared way before the main storyline started. The way you're describing it kind of reminds me of uh, old young Jean from Battle of the Atom. I was just thinking of old man versus old man from The Legend of Neil. Well. So there you have it. That took a turn. Now, it's worth noting that the old man Logan we're going to be talking about is a slightly different old man Logan from the one currently knocking around the Marvel Universe and headlighting the series titled Old Man Logan. And if you've been listening to this podcast or reading X-Men for very long, this probably will not surprise you because alternate universes make everything better and also more complicated. Okay, so the current old man Logan, the one who's part of current main Marvel continuity, is a Logan from a section of Battle World. That's the Secret Wars big amalgamated world where the most recent Secret Wars series took place. That's based on the original Old Man Logan story, but again, on Battleworld, so Doctor Doom is God, etc. That character got yanked through into the main universe after the destruction of Battleworld. He's got a lot in common with the original, but there are some critical differences, and we're not going to talk about him today either. Right, because we have a whole lot to cover. So that being said, do you want to just go ahead and jump into the Old Man Logan story? I don't want to jump into the Old Man Logan story. It's a terrible place to raise your kids. Yeah, I don't want to hang out in that world. It's full of dark, terrible things, but goddamn, it's also full of feelings and amazing art. It's also one of my very, very, very favorite genres, which is the post-apocalyptic Western. That works really well. I totally agree. I was in a role-playing game for many years that was basically that, but with some weird like metaphysical, science fiction-y, psychological, Lovecraftian stuff thrown into. There's a lot going on in that game. The Old Man Logan story starts, as all epic stories should, with some pretty great narration. Nobody knows what happened on the night the heroes fell. All we know is that they disappeared, and evil triumphed, and the bad guys have been calling the shots ever since. What happened to Wolverine is the biggest mystery of all. And visually, as we see this narration, we have this awesome contrast between a grizzled, white-haired, very indeed old man, Logan, riding a horse through this, like, wasteland of brown and gray, wearing patched-up leather. And that's contrasted with a torn-up, costumed, bloody Wolverine waiting to get hit by a train. We're going to get flashes of that second scene throughout the first few issues of this story. Um, In fact, in general, we're going to get flashes of Logan's life before, uh, you know, the end of his life as Wolverine. And... What I love about that is that we're not going to know for a fairly long time which ones of those things actually happened, which ones are parts of his story, which ones are apocryphal, and which ones are imagined. Right. The narration's mention of a mystery is a large part of the first part of this story. Like, what happens to Wolverine to turn him into this sort of sad, beaten-down old man? And we will definitely find out, but for now, what we mainly see is Wolverine with a very normal family. He's got a wife named Maureen, two kids named Scotty and Jade, and they're basically living in, like, you know, the Grapes of Wrath or something? Like, this is some super dust bowl shit going on here. I think we should point out, this is not Wolverine. This is Logan. Logan has very pointedly not been Wolverine for a very, very long time, and he is very adamant about that. Yeah, at one point, one of his kids asks about this rumor that they heard at school that, you know, Logan used to be a superhero, and he's like, hey, there's no such thing as superheroes. Eat your dinner. You mentioned it's very dust bowl-y, and we talked about it as a Western. And one of the conceits of this story that I really love, and there are a lot of things that you kind of have to just sort of take as given and rule of cool away. And the first one is that when civilization fell, everyone basically became cowboys and everyone started talking like cowboys. Yeah, everybody got all old timey. Like this is supposed to happen 50 years after the present day of the Marvel Universe. And apparently once you lose things like, you know, centralized government and access to technology, you just sound like a cowboy. Alternately, we can assume that the fall was from a super media literate society which 
basically saw what was happening and decided to full on just embrace the genre conventions. You know, that's a good point. If our society ever falls in this fashion, I'm totally going to start wearing old timey clothes, getting a job as a prospector and talking like that. I mean, I feel like, you know, there are a lot of end of civilization scenarios where the future pretty much belongs to the larvers. But this is not all just idyllic, dusty stuff. We never described it as idyllic. You've literally described it as the 30s dust bowl. Why would you use the word idyllic to describe that, man? Look at their old timey language. That seems like so much fun. That's not idyllic. They're sharecroppers. Their farm's about to get taken away. They can't afford rent. Logan is obviously miserable and dealing with a terrible past. I mean, the family's kind of surviving, but they're not happy. I question your definition of idyllic, my friend. Okay, entirely reasonable on all fronts. Nonetheless, things can always get worse. Because I will say, like, the family, they do seem to get along really well. They seem to really love each other. Like, that part is established super, super solidly. I gotta say, man, I mean, we're gonna get to this later, but Logan's whole family, this cozy domestic scene with his kind of generic wife and kids, like, this family could not be more like prepackaged and vacuum sealed with an expiration date. Well, we see the uh, biggest threat to them pretty quickly because they are running late on rent and we see their landlord show up. This is the Hulk gang. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the Hulk gang. Do we have to? We kind of do. It's not my favorite part of the story either, but they're pretty important to it. Okay, the Hulk gang is what you get when Hulks do incest from multiple generations and fall into every single related cliche. It's unfortunate because so much about this story is great, but some of the main antagonists are like extremely stereotypical rednecks. And I'm not going to say, you know, you can't play with cultural tropes. I think that can be done well sometimes. This really, talking as somebody who lived in the Appalachian area for six years, is not doing it well. Yeah, this is one of those I just kind of want to go watch Tucker and Dale versus Evil to wash the taste out of my mouth things. I kind of want to watch that all the time. That movie is great. It is. It's a really, really good movie. It's really funny and really sweet. And yeah, <laughs> man, I really like that movie. Me too. But some members of the Hulk gang show up in what's very clearly the Fantastic Car, the Fantastic Four's old super high tech, you know, vision of the future world of tomorrow vehicle. And we should say, this is a story that's rooted really heavily in the larger Marvel universe. It's a Wolverine story, but it's a Wolverine story that's really about the larger world that he's part of or was part of. And the pieces of it and the references in it that pop up are just everywhere. It's, you know, panning for callbacks. And I mean, that's something that we're definitely not going to see in the Logan movie, because of course, Fox and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they don't share rights for just about anything, except maybe Quicksilver. You know what? I bet we are going to see that, but I bet it's going to be pretty much X-Men focused. There's almost no... X-Men stuff in this. It's all other Marvel teams. I bet if they end up going that direction in Logan, it's just going to be X-Men stuff. That would make a lot of sense, yeah. But regardless, the Hulk gang shows up and they're here for the rent and Logan and his family don't have it. So they ask if he's ready to take his punishment. And we see Logan pop his claws and damn near cut one of the Hulk gang in half. It's violent. It's aggressive. It's what we would expect from Logan in a situation like this. And it's not what happens. Right. It's just a brief fantasy. And cutting back to the real world, Logan just says, yes, sir, and gets the crap kicked out of him, doesn't fight back at all. And seeing these, you know, young upstart green dudes, you know, come in their defaced Fantasticar, which says instead of just the four logo, dead and forgotten, seeing them beat up this guy who just wants to be with his family, like, this is rough stuff. This is sad from the start. It also does a really good job of establishing where Logan is right now. These are characters who we know as readers, and we especially know of four readers who are coming into this having read more of the Wolverine series, that Logan could easily take down. They are the kind of punks that he would ordinarily take no shit from. And I would say that this scene, more than any other in that first issue, establishes just how different this Logan has become. Right, Logan doesn't want to start any trouble. He doesn't want to be involved in any violence, or at least he doesn't want to inflict any violence. All he wants to do is keep quiet and take care of his family. The Hulks tell him, you know, double next month or everybody dies and they head off, leaving Logan's family to try to figure out where they're going to get the money. And also leaving Logan kind of in a bloody heap. I mean, he's in bad shape. This is an old, old Wolverine and he uh, doesn't heal as quickly as he used to. Yeah, but he still heals and he heals in time for a surprise visitor who shows up the very next day. 
because this is Clint Barton. This is Hawkeye with a ponytail and a beard and black John Lennon glasses and an earring. And I got to say, I love this version of Hawkeye and I love that he's in this storyline. Is it because he looks like your dad? Because he looks like your dad. He does kind of look like a more superheroic version of my dad. It's true. Yeah, no, he's definitely post-apocalyptic Western superhero Steve Stokes. (laughs) Right. But yeah, he's going to be one of the central characters of this whole series And that's a strange pairing because Wolverine and Hawkeye, I mean, they've certainly overlapped here and there, but they've never been, you know, one of those iconic duos like, say, Beast and Wonder Man or something like that. And I think that actually works really well. And there's a specific reason for that. Actually, there are a couple of reasons. One of them is that they just make pretty effective mutual foils. But the main reason I think Hawkeye works really well here is that he's a character who didn't know Logan well. He knew Wolverine. He knew Logan as a superhero, not really as a person. And so the guy who he's coming to pick up, the guy who he's expecting to see is Wolverine, not Logan. So Hawkeye is kind of our outsider point of view here. He is someone as baffled and as frustrated with the changes in Logan as the readers are going to be. Yeah. And so why is Hawkeye here to see Logan? Hawkeye is here to see Logan because, again, this is a Western, to try to convince him to go on one last job. I got to say, this part reminds me so much of the old Clint Eastwood movie, Unforgiven, like that the initial setup is almost identical. Hulks and all, really. Hulks and all. It was a strange thing to see Clint Eastwood facing off against rednecky hulks, but, you know, it kind of worked. The part where Hawkeye shows up kind of lost me, but it was a good move to cast Sam Elliott there. <laughs> Sam Elliott as Hawkeye? Huh, I'm not as so Sam sure Sam Elliott that. as this version of Hawkeye. Maybe, maybe. I'm gonna have to think about that one. No, no, Sam Elliott would be the narrator. He's the guy who reads that great opening bit. Mm, okay, I'm totally down with that. Yeah. So Hawkeye shows up, and Hawkeye specifically, we get the impression Hawkeye's some kind of a smuggler. Hawkeye has a delivery job. He needs someone to come with him as his driver. Hawkeye is pretty much blind at this point. And I think it's a really nice touch that Hawkeye is pretty much blind at this point because he's in his 80s and has glaucoma. There was no great trauma. No one went, oh my God, we're going to take Hawkeye out by blinding him. It's just been time and age. Yeah, this book gets across kind of the ravages of age quite well, I think, and just how the world keeps on keeping on and eventually everybody becomes less relevant and then irrelevant. Yeah, everything here, everything in this world, and this is one of those places where McNiven's art just, well, shines is not the right word to use here because the adjective I was going to use to describe everything is weathered. Anyway, Hawkeye's got this gig. He promises no heroics just driving cross country with with Hawkeye to make a delivery. And he offers him 500 bucks, which in this world is a whole, whole lot of money. And in our world, wouldn't even cover the gas to get to D.C. It's an awful lot of dough, Wolverine. An awful lot of rent. What do you say? My name is Logan. Sure it is. That thing you mentioned before about Hawkeye mainly having a relationship with Wolverine, that's true. And so seeing the way Clint looks at Logan... Seeing the way he looks specifically at Logan's relationship with who he used to be, this superhero on the X-Men, and seeing that change over the course of the story, that's going to be a lot of our sort of emotional heft. Aw, post-apocalypse. No. (laughs) Yeah, basically that. And so Logan agrees because, you know, the Hulk gang is scary. They specifically said they were going to murder his family if he couldn't get rent, so what else can he do? Yeah, this is his only chance. And um, Hawkeye has secured them a ride. And what a ride he has secured. He's got the spider buggy. Also known as the Spider-Mobile. Yes, it's that thing that Spider-Man used to use to, like, drive on the sides of buildings. And it's bright red and bright blue and covered in web designs. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about this series is the juxtaposition of this horribly dark shit, this sadness about, you know, how time makes fools of us all juxtaposed with a bunch of superhero stuff because this is the Marvel Universe. That's what you would have left over from the world before the fall, before the villains destroyed everything. It's also so profoundly appropriate that it's Hawkeye's car because Hawkeye in this story, he is the guy who will not accept that the situation is hopeless. Logan at this point, Logan is beaten. Logan has given in completely. Hawkeye refuses to. Hawkeye is basically the keeper of that spark of brightness of what superheroes were, of what they could have been. And that his vehicle is the spider buggy could not feel more appropriate. And it's interesting hearing you say that, hearing you keep calling Clint Hawkeye, because that's what this story does. Logan is always Logan, but Clint is always Hawkeye. He's always called by his superhero name, with a couple of very specific exceptions. So we get a travel montage. It's a pretty effective travel montage. We've got, you know, the dotted line through the different villain-controlled territories. Uh, The Hulks have a chunk of it. Magneto bafflingly has Las Vegas. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, even Red Skull's actually kind of confused by that when he's talking about it. And have we gotten to the origin of this world yet? I feel like we should talk about what's going on here and exactly what the America they're navigating through is. So the opening narration covered a little bit of it, but the short version is one day all of the supervillains, like all of them, 
decided to take down all of the superheroes, and also while they were at it, the U.S. government, and it's implied most of the rest of the world. So the United States is now completely controlled by supervillains. It's basically a criminal nation. It's brutish. Life is really horrible and violent. If you are not one of the supervillains, if you're not one of the strong, you're kind of fucked. You know, you're a sharecropper trying to dig up rent to pay off some redneck hulks, for example. Also, Red Skull is president, making this a fairly timely story to look back at. (laughs) There is that. Um, But I want to talk a bit about the villains as they are in the story, because I mentioned when we started that there's some rule of cool stuff you're going to have to take on faith and sort of assume this is not the Marvel Universe I know. And the villains are among that. If I try to look at the villains who took over the world in Old Man Logan as the villains I'm familiar with, the whole story falls apart for me. And what I had to do ultimately is just decide these are different versions of the villains. These are basically sort of the slightly goofy Silver age versions of the villains filtered through Mark Millar's sensibilities. They don't have any complexity. They don't have any gravitas. None of them are at all gray. They're just bad guys who do bad guy stuff. Yeah, and when you take that concept, I mean, it sounds really goofy from a Silver Age standpoint, but bad guys who do bad guy stuff in a world where the level of violence that would be a bit more realistic is in place, that is actually terrifying. It's also kind of interestingly illustrative of something else incidental, which is going to tie into the larger series, too. When you see all of those supervillains listed out, it becomes immediately and starkly evident just how few major female supervillains there are in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, we were talking a lot earlier about just sort of the representations of gender in this story, and the fact is there aren't that many female characters, period, and there especially aren't that many female characters in positions of power. I'm not sure that two women have a conversation at any point in this entire story. It's possible they don't, unless you count Logan's wife and daughter, which, given that that's part of a bigger conversation, probably not. An incidental background dialogue. So that is a major, major downside to this story. It's a Western in the good and fun ways, but it's also a Western with a lot of the problems that tend to come with that genre. So Logan and Hawkeye keep driving. They have a long, long way to go. And I mean, that's basically going to be the entirety of this story is them going across the entire country from the West to the East. And they end up in San Francisco at one point, and it's just kind of gone. San Francisco is gone because of the Moloids. Now, you might remember these guys. They are the little wacky gray alien-looking dudes who live underground and chatter a lot, and one of them mutated. They're a little different in Old Man Logan. Yeah, Hawkeye mentions at one point, as they look around the tops of buildings that are all that's sticking out of the ground because San Francisco freaking sunk, that when Earth's population hit 8 billion, the Moloids came out like some kind of an immune system. And I really love that concept because it ties in quite nicely with the whole uh, supervillains taking over. It's basically humanity having flown too close to the sun. It's humanity having not, you know, been good custodians of the planet and the government and society and all that. And so the world, or maybe just entropy or whatever, kind of swung the other way. It's worth noting, too, that when this story takes place, it's been 50 years since the supervillain uprising. The supervillains, the original supervillains may have been the ones who overthrew the original status quo. But at this point, humans are the ones maintaining the current one. So Logan decides, you know what, there might be survivors here. It looks like whatever happened here happened very recently, this collapse of the town. Hawkeye, I know we have this mission. We have to at least see if anybody's still around. And so seeing that little spark of goodness, not as heroism exactly in Logan, but just as sort of the kind of guy he is, is pretty satisfying. He's a good neighbor. Yeah, that basically is what it is. He's a good neighbor. He's not a hero. He's just a guy trying to do what he feels like normal guys should do. Yeah, he'll come help you build your barn. He'll look for survivors. And then, unfortunately, because this is Old Man Logan and Old Man Logan absolutely can't have nice things, he'll get attacked by Ghost Riders. So this is something we'll see a lot of. We'll see a lot of superhero and supervillain iconography used basically by gangs. And that's what this is. It's just a street gang who happen to have motorcycles that are partially on fire, which I got to say, if you're going to be a street gang, that's a pretty good gimmick. I feel like of the superheroes most likely to just like inspire pretenders because they look cool ghost riders up there absolutely i feel like some of the people who were inspired would probably just end up with heavy third degree burns over their faces but uh you know there are better ways to do it than that and these ghost riders they're brutal as hell and logan like we said refuses to inflict violence upon anyone and steve mcniven just draws the hell out of him getting the crap kicked out of him i mean there's blood there's scrapes there's cuts there's bludgeoning like It's sad to see this. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it's almost admirable to see Logan stick so closely to his pacifism. But what that's leading to is some very lovingly rendered injury, like severe, painful, difficult to read injury. I mean, this is sort of like Charles Soule and how his forte is killing X-Men. Steve McNiven, his forte is just beating up Logan. 
Or, well, everyone in this story. Well, yeah, but I mean, remember, he drew Death of Wolverine. Oh, well, yes, there's that, too. That's what I'm referring back to. Fortunately for Logan, and fortunately for the cargo that they're carrying, Hawkeye has no such compunctions. He just shoots all of the Ghost Riders with arrows. He may be nearly blind, but unlike main universe Clint Barton, his hearing is superlative, and he's got a lot of arrows. They are not trick arrows. They are just sort of murder arrows. And Logan is furious, because Hawkeye just killed a whole lot of dudes. I mean, not good people, but nonetheless, that was murder. What the hell did they do to you, man? And we get this flash of Wolverine, not Logan, but Wolverine back in the day, overwhelmed by Sinister, Omega Red, Sabretooth, Cyber. They're all dogpiling him. It's horrible. And he just replies, They broke me, bub. Only reason I'm still alive. The next day, or a few days later, or at some point during the day, you know, we find out how Hawkeye is still alive, which is basically that the villains just didn't bother with him. He is skilled, but he's a baseline human. He's not really that special on the scheme of things, and he's certainly not a guy who the villains would expect to be able to take them down, which is a large part of how he's managed to stay alive all this time. Yeah, he almost seems offended by that, which makes sense. I mean, if you remember, Hawkeye was originally a supervillain who then kind of reformed and was offered a membership in the Avengers, and this is a big deal to him. Like, it's not something that comes up much these days, but nonetheless, that's a huge part of who Clint Barton is. Right, he's snubbed by his former colleagues even here. So the two characters get to Las Vegas, which now is called Hammer Falls, and for a Thor fan like me, that made me immediately have a pretty good idea of what was going on. This is a place where people pray, where they come almost as pilgrims to the final site of Mjolnir, where Thor's hammer fell when Thor himself died. And this is a world, of course, where there's nobody left who's worthy to lift it. There is nobody left who's that kind of hero, who's that kind of noble. Like any pilgrimage site, it's surrounded by tourist traps and attractions and places where you can buy little tokens and icons, and all of them in this world are superhero-themed. Superheroes are basically treated as relics of the past, as lost symbols of hope. You know, you might carry an X-Men keychain or have a Captain America bandana kind of as a little sigil and touchstone. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, so many little details as Logan and Hawkeye travel across the United States just make it clear not just what happened, but how people have reacted. And I gotta say, how they react seems pretty realistic. What I find interesting is that in this world where the superheroes have largely been dead for a long time, A, their merch looks almost the same the way it does in our world, but B, their symbolism is really similar. I've talked about this before. I've talked about superheroes as cultural touchstones and as our cultural folk heroes in mythology. And that in a lot of ways in modern society, they're the closest things we have to that. You know, everyone knows who these guys are. You can stop a random person on the street and they are probably more likely to know Batman's origin story than the name of the current vice president, whether or not they've ever read a Batman comic, because that stuff has just sort of seeped into our cultural consciousness. And by the same token, they're sort of the abstract symbols and touchstones we have for better worlds and for better versions of ourselves. And that seems like, you know, in this world where they've all been lost, that seems like a kind of almost the symbolic status that they've developed in some ways. Old Man Logan's world is a world that could only exist with superheroes, but in some ways it's a much, much more direct parallel to our own than the standard 616. I would agree, yeah. I mean, that kind of iconography, like, obviously there's Captain America and Superman and stuff, but in this world it's everybody, and in Hammer Falls it's very much Thor, and god damn it's a powerful image that's powerfully rendered and told. Now, this isn't just a place to get a cool picture of a hammer lying on the ground, because some very familiar characters are here, those being... Ultron 8, and Tanya. Who are they? Well, Tanya's not familiar at all. We've never seen Tanya before. Uh, We've also never seen Ultron 8. We've seen some of his predecessors. Familiar to the characters. Uh, Tanya specifically is Hawkeye's ex-wife. She is Peter Parker's daughter. We don't know with whom she's Peter Parker's daughter. She doesn't look like any of Peter Parker's known sort of expected flames, which is a detail I, I actually really appreciate. Like, we don't have a redhead. We don't have a blonde in a green jacket or something like that. And Ultron 8 is her second husband. And he's just a really affable dude. He is a very, very affable, friendly Ultron who runs a garage outside of town. Yeah, I like that kind of world building where every detail isn't just explained, it's assumed because to the characters, this kind of thing is normal. Having, you know, the person that your ex remarried be an evil robot who just dresses in a suit, that's kind of normal. He's not an evil robot, he's just descended from evil robots. There have been good Ultrons before, come on, man. That's true, I suppose. Don't be racist. (laughs) I'll do my best. But Tanya tells Hawkeye what's going on, which is that their daughter, Ashley, Apparently, she, just like all the other people in Hammer Falls, got inspired by the legends of the superheroes, and she and a couple of her friends dressed up and went to take down the current establishment. They went to take down Kingpin. It did not go well. Right. They're captured right now. And so Tanya tells Clint, hey, this is our daughter. 
you used to be Hero. I know you left when she was really, really young, but you have got to save her. She's a good person. Now, Hawkeye is a little bit bemused at the direction that Ashley has taken in life. Uh, he did not figure her for the superhero type. I figured she was more, I think, in his words, more evil badass. To which Tanya points out that that's because Hawkeye walked away when Ashley was three months old. To which I personally would rejoin that that's probably why he thinks she was an evil badass, because all babies are basically supervillains. That's pretty legit, yeah. No, if you extrapolate what someone's personality is going to be like, what they're going to be like as an adult from baby behavior, what you get is someone who is wholly selfish and really likes boobs. I was trying to build a death ray when I was little. Yeah, well, we can't all have monorail as our first word. It was totally my first word, or at least my first multisyllabic word. That's a really important difference, but still. <laughs> yep. Clint, of course, is absolutely willing to do this. That's the kind of guy he is. Logan doesn't want any part of it. This was not the deal. Hawkeye offers to pay him double, and Logan says, well, I'll come along, but I'm not going to fight. And so as they head off, Ultron 8 stops Logan and says, hey, take this for luck, and hands him an X-Men logo keychain. Logan freezes and flashes back to lying with his head on the train tracks, but nothing further than that. The two head off, and Hawkeye just can't stop talking about how, you know, he never thought he would make anything good in his life. But now that his daughter, his daughter who he abandoned, is going off to be a superhero, is going off to fight for her ideals in this fallen world, he could not be prouder. And it's hard not to just be right there with him. It's hard not to smile watching him, you know, have a flash of hope. Now, in his arena, the new kingpin is about to execute two members of Ashley's gang, the new Daredevil and Punisher. And this is not the kingpin we're familiar with. This is definitely not Wilson Fisk. Yeah, this is a younger character and one that we get the impression rose up in the ranks of a local gang. Because, of course, gangs are the power structure in this world. To become kingpin and to take out the person who was running Las Vegas, Magneto. The big man made one stupid mistake, boys and girls. Bitch got old. And there's something weird about seeing these characters, like these young upstarts almost, who have taken down the old guard of villains. I mean, yes, in this world, the villains were freaking awful and murdered the hell out of the heroes. But it's almost like these new characters don't have any respect for what they represented. They're just here for power. They're just here for kicks. And it's weird that I'm offended that the new villains are not as respectful as the old villains, even though they've all been murdering everybody. But I kind of am. Kids these days. There's actually there's this great Orwell essay called The Decline of the British Murder. Well, there you go. It's, See, it's, it's on a similar premise. Um. Anyway, uh, he then has dinosaurs eat the superheroes. Right. Because and, dinosaurs. And it is gory as hell. We mentioned that Steve McNiven doesn't shy away from violence, and he really, really doesn't. Like, if you're squeamish, this is maybe not going to be an easy comic for you to read. And the crowd goes wild. In fact, what we find out is that Hammer Falls as a whole really likes the Kingpin. They are not really looking to rise up against him. As Logan is horrified watching from far away with binoculars, Hawkeye explains, Just shows how bad things were under Magneto. So they make a plan. Using their, you know, fancy science technology stuff, they determine that Ashley is locked deep within a converted Walmart. There are a bunch of guards there, all heavily armed, and they, well, they aren't. They have a bow and some claws that Logan won't pop, and a car. But what a car they have. So they take the spider buggy, reach 200 miles per hour driving on the sides of skyscrapers, and just crash through the freaking Walmart directly to where Ashley is being held in a prison cell in her Spider-Man costume. That'll be dad. She calls out to Hawkeye exactly the position of the keypad to unlock the cell that she's in. He fires an arrow, hits it, they uh, kick the crap out of the villains, and she grabs a shotgun and fucking decapitates the kingpin with it. She just swings she it through his, his neck. She knocks his head off. Now, that would be really hard to do in real life, but in this world, in this gory, dark, horrible world, and assuming that maybe she's got some residual powers left over from her grandfather Spider-Man, like, okay, but still, what a freaking image. God damn. Which is when we find out what Ashley's plan was all along. You remember how Clint had her pegged as an evil badass? Yeah. Yeah, Clint was right. Because she kind of arranged this whole thing, presumably even got her friends killed, so her father would show up to break her out, she could kill the kingpin, and she could kill him as an example and take over the local crime scene. Yeah, so she is about to kill Hawkeye, basically, to cement her place as the new kingpin when Logan finally grits his teeth, compromises his principles, and plows through the scene in the Spider-Mobile to rescue his buddy. Damn you to hell for making me do this, Hawkeye. Logan scoops Hawkeye up, crashes through the wall, through another building to the ground below, and heads off with Ashley and her new followers hot on their trail. They are chasing Logan and Hawkeye in cars, but also, and again, on dinosaurs, because 
They've got dinosaurs. They're riding dinosaurs. This is so great. Every Western should have a dinosaur chase scene. I think it's something about breeding dinosaurs from the Savage Land and bringing them to the rest of the world, but it's kind of great. You know what? I'm going to actually revise my earlier statement. Every movie should have a dinosaur chase scene, especially romantic comedies. When Harry met Sally, met a velociraptor? Yes. Okay, I'm totally down with this. And as this chase scene occurs, suddenly the ground opens up and swallows everybody. Because remember that whole thing with the moloids? Apparently can happen very suddenly. They all fall down a deep, deep pit. And when Logan wakes up two hours later, it is to a scene of torn apart corpses. The moloids have been just eating Ashley's gang. Hawkeye, fortunately, has survived by virtue of being stuck under the spider buggy. And Logan manages to get Hawkeye out, but that leaves the question of how they can escape. They're hundreds of feet underground. Hawkeye has an explanation, of course. We got Parker's old car. Don't you remember? Does whatever a spider can. And up the wall they go, escaping the scene of carnage and continuing their road trip. They end up in a paste pot creek, Wyoming. Like, we mentioned that when you see the map earlier in the series... All of the places are named after villains, and I gotta say, referencing Paste Pot Pete, always a fan. Also that they stuck with Paste Pot Pete and not the Trapster, because who the hell cares about the Trapster? He is Paste Pot Pete, damn it, now and forever. Exactly. And what they see there is a gigantic, like, hundred-foot-tall skeleton wearing some pretty familiar golden horns and with a green cape smashed under a building. Hawkeye explains, that's the Baxter building. Thor dropped it on his brother when they were fighting at the end of things, at the end of this whole superhero-supervillain conflict. As you may recall, the Baxter building is not ordinarily in Wyoming. The Fantastic Four was based in New York, and what this implies is that they had fought all the way across America. I assume just with Thor just swinging the Baxter building at Loki. I don't know, but this is a durable building. This is a world where gods walked, like, literally and figuratively— And, you know, the villains have all taken over, but like we said, all the big villains are gone at this point. Like, all of the grandeur, all of the operatic conflict, it's all just turned into ugly violence, into pointlessness. And this image is just such a powerful representation of that. From Wyoming, Hawkeye and Logan head into South Dakota and inevitably and, of course, past Mount Rushmore, which inevitably, of course, has a fifth face on it, that being the Red Skull. And they take a break in a bar and sort of reminisce about their past mistakes. Hawkeye is really torn up about, you know, leaving his daughter, leaving her to turn into what she turned into, into this horrible person. And Logan just flashes back to that same image, him torn and bloody, this time not dogpiled by a bunch of his old villains, but standing over their corpses. And this is, I think, one of the first hints we get that maybe the memories we've been seeing of what happened to Logan might not be exactly in line. And Hawkeye asks Logan what happened. And finally, we learn what exactly it was that broke Wolverine so completely. And this part gets kind of weird visually because we've been used to this dusty, dirty, old, wrinkly, gross world. And all of a sudden, we're back in bright colors and spandex. We're back in the present day of the Marvel Universe in the X-Mansion with Wolverine and Jubilee. This is the day that the villains attack. There have been distress calls from everywhere. Jubilee is hearing from, you know, the Baxter building, from the Avengers. And suddenly there's an explosion. Jubilee is dead and the villains attack. And it's a random assembly of villains. They're not ex-villains. We've got uh, Claw, Strife. I guess Strife's an ex-villain. Strife, man. Mr. Hyde, Shocker. More and more and more appear. And what we find out is, you know, there are the villains finally coordinated. They decided there are more of us than the heroes. If we're careful, if we just don't keep throwing ourselves at the same people who've been beating us up for years, if we all strike in a coordinated way, we can take them down. And this group is here for the X-Men. Right. This is like the Acts of Vengeance crossover from the 80s, writ large, done smartly, and it works. Now, these guys have come for the X-Men, but except for Logan, the X-Men are nowhere to be found. He's running through the mansion. He's calling for, you know, Storm, Cyclops, any of the senior X-Men. They're nowhere, and that's our first hint, and it's a subtle hint of what's actually happening. And so he's cutting down villains left and right, just dismembering them and decapitating them, and just killing the hell out of villain after villain, and McNiven is And trying desperately to get the kids to safety while he's doing so. And the pages just keep turning with all of this violence, with him getting more torn up, with more and more villains piling up underneath him. And at long last, it's just him and Bullseye, the Daredevil villain, fighting for like an hour and a half. Bullseye just won't go down. All I could think about was what was going on out there, what they'd done to the other superheroes, and what he'd do to the kids if I didn't seize my chance. 
and Logan stabs Bullseye. Logan delivers the killing blow. And as he dies, Bullseye responds, Logan, stop, please. Why are you doing this? You're supposed to be our friend. And man, this is one of the best oh shit reveals I have ever seen in a comic book. Because Mysterio, the illusion-creating, mind-controlling Spider-Man villain, steps into the room, and suddenly, Wolverine's holding the corpse of Jubilee. Did you really think that you could do all this alone? Take down 40 supervillains. Talk about delusions of grandeur. But your friends, people who would hesitate, that's a different matter entirely. And the panel pans out, and Logan is in just this gigantic pile of all of the X-Men, of all of their corpses. Every single one. They're all torn apart. They're all dead. This is what broke Logan. It's not that the supervillains did something this terrible to him. It's what they forced him to do. That he specifically is the one who killed the X-Men, even if he didn't know what he was doing, even if he wasn't doing it on purpose. And I want to talk about this a little because this is a really over-the-top thing to have happen. Like, this is almost too over-the-top in a way to have Wolverine have killed every single one of his friends. But there's something about this story, there's something about just the scope of the tragedy in the world of Old Man Logan that, for me, makes it kind of work. Yeah, I mean, it's like what I was saying about the villains. It's something that fits within the conceit of this specific universe. You gotta take pretty much all the events in Old Man Logan, and especially the world of Old Man Logan, with a stiff grain or shot glass or so of salt. But, you know, the things that happen aren't there for plausible causality. They're there for telling a good story. And this is one of those points. Could Logan take down all of the X-Men? Probably not. Could Logan take down all of the X-Men if Mysterio were deliberately, you know, disorienting them? Maybe. Still kind of iffy. Still fairly iffy, actually, I'd say. But for this story... Logan needs to have done that for the story to happen, and so Logan has. And there are a lot of times when I'll go after stuff like this as feeling contrived, but here, again, it's totally in keeping with the tone and the conceit and the feel of this particular story in this particular world. Logan remembers what happened after, him just staggering out, the same panel that we saw on the very first page of the storyline, all beaten and bloody, walking over to train tracks, putting his head on the tracks and just waiting to die, and he tells Hawkeye... Now you just try telling me Wolverine didn't deserve to die. You just try telling me I've been a fool to hide these claws for 50 years. I wouldn't dare. And it's back on the road. It's back on the road with Hawkeye having a very different understanding of his traveling companion. And with a giant venom-infected Tyrannosaurus chasing after the spider buggy. Okay, the Venom symbiote, like Spider-Man's black costume, taking over a Tyrannosaurus Rex, we saw this actually in a recent storyline in the Old Man Logan ongoing series. Well, we saw a hallucination of it, but yeah. It makes me so freaking happy. And they're rescued by a man sent by a very familiar-looking woman, the man being Black Bolt. This is a very different designed Black Bolt, though, just in a coat with a staff, not wearing a mask, and just saying in tiny letters in a giant speech bubble, stop. Which is enough to splatter the symbiote out of the dinosaur. This is one of those places, man, when people do Black Bolt's dialogue rendered well and rendered dynamically, it's always so much fun. Right, because his power, of course, is that, you know, a single word from him just like blows everything up around him. And he's been sent by somebody who I was very surprised and pleased to see in this story the first time I read it. Okay, so this is the other last surviving X-Men, because there is still one other, and that, of course, is Emma Frost. She's living in a place called the Forbidden Quarter, this sort of high-tech kind of, I'm not sure if it's the Resistance or just kind of an enclave that does its own thing and tries to survive in the Wasteland, but regardless, she has rescued Logan and Hawkeye. You haven't been kidnapped. You've been rescued. And this car you're so worried about is being repaired by our technicians. Don't bite the hand that feeds you, darling. We're your first good news since you started this adventure. And she explains a little bit about what's happened over the last 50 years. Specifically, there are no more mutants. No new mutants have been born in, like, more than 40 years. And this right here seems to be a plot point that the Logan movie is going with. I want to talk about Emma in this universe because, man, Emma is one of my favorite characters from Old Man Logan. I mean, she's one of my favorite characters anyway, but holy shit, I love the way she's done in here. I agree, yeah. 
Because it's clear she's made some compromises. Hawkeye references her marrying somebody, her marrying this horrible person and compromising her ethics. And she basically just says, hey, she did what she needed to to survive. Emma, she's a very morally gray character, but in some ways she is kind of the superhero to end all superheroes. She is someone who will compromise everything to be able to keep fighting. She is the character who will sell her soul for a chance at continuing to resist. Dark Reign is a, a mixed bag as a story, but Emma's role in it and Emma's involvement in it is one of my favorite parts. And it's, again, I think very much a reflection of this particular facet of Emma Frost. Mm-hmm. I mean, you even see that in the original Age of Apocalypse, the Emma who has been lobotomized basically to stay under Apocalypse's radar. Yeah, one of my favorite versions of Emma Frost right there. And again, to be able to keep leading and staying active in the human resistance. But she's still very much Emma, and that's quite clear in one of her exchanges with Logan before Hawkeye and Logan get back on the road. Well, Logan, did you find that peace you've always craved? Huh? This life you've built for yourself in California. Are you happy with your wife and children? Did you finally find contentment? You're the mind reader. Then congratulations. And I enjoy that it's unclear whether she genuinely is happy for him or whether she's just sort of being derisive of his choice to just step out of that fight. Again, something we've seen consistently with her over the years is that Emma has no patience for people who choose to give up. You know, there's the perennial what do Cyclops and Emma Frost see in each other, and I think the answer a lot of the time boils down to this. That sort of tenacity, that sort of refusal to compromise. Not refusal to compromise, but refusal to stop fighting. like. They will both keep going and keep going and do whatever it takes. So next in this road trip, it's on to New Babylon. This is the domain of the president of the United States of America, Red Skull. And it is immediately and of course marked with, you know, 1984-esque posters. Love with force. Always watching you. Believe in the genius of the president. Ooh, that one's a little scary. Right. And this is where Hawkeye tells Logan what's really going on. They're not just smuggling drugs, which was the initial assumption. This is something a lot bigger. What they've got in the trunk of the spider buggy are 99 vials of super soldier serum for 99 members of the Rebel Alliance. Something that'll let them start the next Avengers. Something that'll let them rise up and have a real chance against the supervillains. And Hawkeye's condition for handing over the goods is that he gets one of the vials. He gets in on this revolution. And so his contacts, you know, this uh, nascent new Avengers, this group of rebels who are finally plotting to take back the country from the supervillains who have taken it over, they say, okay. Awesome. You have no idea how much this means to me. I feel like I felt when they first made me an Avenger. Just to have someone believe in me like this. And then Hawkeye's gunned down. He's shot. He's killed. Logan is also gunned down, shot, and presumably killed as well. This was a setup. This was a sting. There is no rebellion. There is no new group of Avengers. This is S.H.I.E.L.D., and Red Skull is in charge of S.H.I.E.L.D. these days. I gotta say, I saw this coming a mile away, but that doesn't really reduce its impact. Again, this is a Western. It's got genre conventions, and that one perfect last heist, the thing that's gonna fix everything, is always, always gonna be a double cross in the end. Yeah, and I gotta say, like, having Hawkeye be... This force of hope, having him be the one that's gradually drawing Logan back into the world, that's gradually showing everybody around him that maybe there is a way out of this shadow, just having him be gunned down because his hope was naive, that is fucking brutal. Speaking of naivete, I will say, you know, and I'll give Hawkeye a pass on this because I know his eyesight is not what it used to be in this story, but Logan really should have noticed that the guy they were dealing with in the Rebel Alliance is literally just a Hitler cosplayer. That does seem like kind of a tip-off to me. I mean, yeah, it wasn't the outfit, but the hair and the mustache. There were certainly some overlaps there. Never trust a Hitler cosplayer. I feel like that's good advice. And so that's seemingly it for our heroes, because the next person we see is, in fact, President Red Skull looking at his trophy room of fallen bits of the armor and equipment and weaponry and whatever of all the world's dead superheroes, not least of which is the bloody, torn Captain America costume he himself is wearing gruesomely. Well, he compares it to wearing the pelt of a beast that one has taken down or the skin of one's enemies. Yeah, Red Skull seems pretty unhinged here. I mean, he's... Even by Red Skull standards, he's kind of taken a few steps further into the deep end. So S.H.I.E.L.D. brings in the bodies now that their sting has been successful, now that the super soldier serum has been secured. Red Skull is actually kind of impressed with somebody like Hawkeye doing something this big. He said he wouldn't have expected it of him. What he's less impressed by is the fact that, to his surprise, but not particularly to the readers, 
Logan is, of course, alive and gets up and immediately attacks. And this is kind of impressive because we've seen that Logan's healing factor is not doing so hot with him being so old. And he got shot probably like a hundred times. I mean, they shot all of their bullets into Logan. But that doesn't stop him from being healed enough right now to kill almost all of the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. Ultimately, Red Skull decides they're going to do this old school one-on-one. He locks out the rest of the agents and he and Logan square off. Red Skull has the Black Knight's sword, I think. Mm-hmm. And Logan so appropriately has Captain America's shield. And we should point out here, Logan's been killing people. Yes, he's been getting revenge for his fallen friend by killing these S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. He has not popped his claws. We have not seen them even once, aside from a brief fantasy sequence, since this story started. And we're not going to see them now, because again, Logan is just fighting with his fists and with any weapons he can find. Stay down, you son of a bitch. Don't make me laugh. You haven't got the guts. Logan does have the guts, because he beheads the Red Skull with Captain America's shield. And look, I am not a gratuitous violence kind of guy. I am not really the person who goes, oh man, you should have seen it and it totally exploded and there was this dude and he blew up this other dude. This scene was so cathartic. I will say that by the time this happened, I really actively needed it to happen. And I needed it to happen just like it did. Absolutely. I mean, the Red Skull is pure evil. He is not just a Nazi, but he's kind of the Nazi. Yeah, no, he's awful. And specifically, that it's Captain America's shield that Logan uses. That even though Steve Rogers is dead. Well, I think it's really important because, you know, I talked about superheroes and symbolism and things like that and the things they mean to us and the things they mean to the ordinary people of that world. But there's also the question of the things they mean to each other. If, If the Red Skull is the Nazi, Captain America is the hero. Logan doesn't just take the Red Skull down using the gear of fallen superheroes. He takes the Red Skull down with the single most powerful symbol of everything that superheroes stand for, everything that ideally defines them in a universe where things are right. He takes him down with something that isn't fundamentally a weapon. He takes him down with something that's about protection, protecting people, you know, and it's Captain America's shield. And again, there is the fact that, you know, Captain America, and if anyone has the right to be the one or at least the one whose weapon takes down Red Skull, it's Cap. But this is also Logan reaching for what it meant to be a superhero. And that is some powerful shit. Unfortunately, just because the Red Skull is dead doesn't mean his entire regime has fallen, and so all of his guards bust into the room. Fortunately, the room that they're busting into in the room where this fight happened was Red Skull's treasure room, which means that Logan now has a suit of Iron Man armor. And he just blasts the fuck off, bursting through the ceiling of the White House in a giant explosion wearing Tony Stark's red and gold. Ho, ho, ho. It's pretty great. But Logan at this point, he's kind of panicking. I mean, he managed to scoop up the suitcase of money that S.H.I.E.L.D. had presented to Hawkeye before they double-crossed him. So he's got his rent. He's got a way to get back home. He's in this Iron Man armor. But after everything went so badly, he's terrified. And he just pushes the armor to the limit, telling the computer to just shut the hell up about how little fuel he might have, about the fact that he was going to burn it out. He needs to get home right away. He finally runs out of fuel and crashes in the desert and spends the last 36 hours in a dead run getting back in the nick of time, sprinting up to the first person he sees, who's his neighbor Donovan, who's standing near Logan's house with his hat in his hands. Tell him I got it. Tell Maureen I got the money and we don't have to worry about the Hulk gang no more. Oh, Logan. What's wrong? Where's my wife and kids? What the hell's going on here? The Hulk King. Already been for their money. What are you talking about? We got two more weeks! Said they got bored. And Logan finds his family. They've been killed. They're lying in pools of their own blood inside his house. Donovan asks Logan to promise not to seek revenge. It'll just make it worse. It'll just bring the full fury of the Hulk gang down on their heads. And Logan doesn't respond. Finally, Donovan asks, Logan? The name isn't Logan, bub. It's Wolverine. That's the end of the Wolverine ongoing arc of Old Man Logan. And I wish that it were the end of the story. Because it is such a good ending. It's such a good final beat. And, you know, I thought when we were talking about this, we considered just not covering the code and not covering the Wolverine giant size Old Man Logan and just basically pretending the story stops here because it should. I agree, yeah. I mean, you know, we don't get to see the final resolution of the conflict. We don't get to see what happens to Logan. 
But here we have him deciding to turn around and fight. Here we have him deciding that maybe it's time to make things right, to fix things, to stop running away from himself. This is Logan recognizing, you know, and choosing to be Wolverine. And Wolverine is, and to an extent, always has been and has represented Logan at his best. He's not Weapon X. He's not Logan with claws. He is Wolverine. He is who Logan was when he was a superhero. But we do have one more part to the story. We do have that giant size issue. And we also have a great deal of murder. So, quick summary. Giant Size Wolverine Old Man Logan is the story of Wolverine just chasing down and killing every single member of the Hulk gang really graphically. Now, this is a pretty common trope in fiction. You know, the really bad things happen. The protagonist, who has been, you know, trying to be a reasonable person, trying to be a good person, just loses his shit and kills them all. This is a good old-fashioned rampage in the words of Archer. I feel like there are two good ways to make a rampage work. One is the John Wick approach. You make the rampage the story. It's the whole thing. That's fair. Uh, I still need to see John Wick, too, and I desperately want to. I love the first movie so much. You know, I still haven't seen it. Oh, my God, Miles, it is so good. It is so, so good. It is so stylish and brilliant and amazing and cathartic and fantastic and you're, I, I actually, I don't know if you'll like it, but you will at least appreciate it. <laughs> Fair enough. After Emerald City, then. Yeah, no, John Wick is amazing. But the other way to do it is basically a two-page montage. Just have, you know, all of the brutality be a quick sequence when it's incidental in another larger story. And I think that's the way that they should have handled it here, because this unbalances the story. It, 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 it puts this weird sort of plum weight at the end of a perfectly balanced line. Right, because we saw Logan, you know, deciding to finally fight back. But what we have here, as we often do in Rampage scenes, like, I don't know, see the end of Roadhouse. I mean, Roadhouse is a campy movie, so it totally fits there. But it's the same kind of thing where there's almost a level of cruelty. There's almost a level of, like, black humor, mean-spiritedness to what the hero does as he cuts down, like, you know, henchman after henchman after henchman. And yes, these henchmen are horrible people. I mean, we see the various members of the Hulk gang bragging about what they've done as they wash the blood out of their clothes and play with all the stuff they stole from Logan's family when they killed them. And there's definitely a kind of great panel where um, a woman is just sort of casually feeding a human arm to a baby Hulk. Okay, that's just kind of cute. It is. It's really, what is so cute about monster babies, like really horrible monster babies? I don't know, something though. And eventually Logan gets to the giant trailer park that is the home base of the Hulk gang, specifically the Fantasticar that he's taken over, the one that was all graffitied that we saw at the beginning of the story, shows up in the middle of this with Bo, one of the leaders of the Hulk gang, chained up in it with something in his mouth that turns out to be the timer for all the C4 strapped to him, and it just blows the fuck up. It blows up the entire trailer park. We see metal shards flying everywhere, people getting decapitated and dismembered. It's super, super graphic. Logan comes in afterwards and challenges Bruce Banner, the patriarch of this clan, who apparently kind of lost it at some point and decided that the proper thing to do in this new supervillain populated world was have a bunch of babies with his cousin, which is honestly the part of this that I buy least of anything else, because there's just no way in hell Jennifer Walters is going to put up with that shit. Right. I mean, I totally buy that Bruce Banner, eventually the radiation would have affected his mind to the degree where he just snapped, where, you know, his human ethics and morality fell by the wayside, and the murderous rage and desires of the Hulk took over. Now, I should say that this is Bruce Banner in a totally human form. He just looks like a withered old man. He's not hulked out in this. So that I buy, but yeah, the idea that he and She-Hulk had all these kids and they turned into extremely stereotypical rednecks, like, that's just weird. The parts of the story I like are basically universally the parts that the Hulk gang just aren't in. Yeah, there's also some weird recursiveness of stereotypes here. So there are a lot of stereotypes about poor rural communities. I mean, we're using the word rednecks, and I kind of feel like we shouldn't be, because, again, that is kind of very specifically a class slur. Yeah, and we certainly um, see those class stereotypes here. But incest is part of that bunch of stereotypes. So the idea that incest is what produces that culture and the very specific cultural trappings that are other stereotypes that go with that seems kind of recursive to me. Like, it seems like the Hulk gang is kind of a fundamental tautology. That is a sentence that I'm pretty sure has never been said before, Jay. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. And so Wolverine, or rather Logan, confronts Bruce Banner, who floors him, who just like sends him flying with one punch, because apparently he now has his strength, you know, not in his Hulk form. And then he hulks out and eats Logan. Yeah, he turns into the Hulk after Logan runs him through and just devours Logan. And I guess that's that, because the next thing we see 
is one of the Hulk gang who went out to pick up some movies coming back, wading through just the gore and carnage of everyone he's ever known and running into the Hulk in Bruce Banner's home, who's, you know, got a nice distended belly having just eaten Logan. Well, he has a nice distended belly briefly because inevitably, and I'm sure no one is surprised by this, Logan slices his way back out. Yeah, he just, you know, cuts open the back of the Hulk and emerges, leaving a corpse at his feet. You? What's the matter, Banner? Something you ate? Because as we know, one of the necessary standbys of a good old-fashioned rampage is at least one one-liner. And then it's ambiguous whether he kills the last remaining Hulk. He may or may not, but what he does do is decide that, well, you know, at least he's gonna adopt the last Hulk baby. And I kind of like this. I mean, I like the idea that he takes all of this horrible shit that he's done and that's been done to him and tries to give this innocent, even though the innocent was recently being fed a human arm, a new start. After slaughtering its entire family, like, there's going to be some really awkward explanations to give when this kid grows up. To be fair, that does come up in the most recent Old Man Logan storyline that just finished. I would fucking hope so. And so later, there's the funeral. There's the funeral for Maureen, Scotty, and Jade. All of Logan's neighbors are there. He's there himself, and he's about to leave. He's decided he's done with this life. He's done with this quiet farmer's life now that his family's gone. You're really going out there to take him down, Mr. Logan? You really going to bring the law back to this country? Why not? Got nothing better to do. You realize it's impossible, right? A friend told me there was no such word. And who might that be? The same man who taught me to forgive myself. Especially right after that last beat at the end of the arc in Wolverine ongoing, like that is so poetic and so well played. And it's kind of a cheesy line, but it works really well. This just feels slathered on. But I do like his last line as he finally rides off into the distance with young Bruce Banner Jr. in a baby carrier on his back. The old man warns him that they're going to kill him for this. Oh, yeah. Well, they killed me 50 years ago, bub. And I got better. So it's kind of, you know, this great resonant arc wraps up with Logan returning to every obnoxious trope of himself. And it's so strange because the good parts of Old Man Logan are incredible. I mean, you could probably tell as we were going through it, we really love a lot of parts of the story. I would say the vast majority of this story. And so the parts that don't work, especially since some of them come at the very end, just are that much more unfortunate. Like, I remember the first time I read this, I was on a plane. I read it all in one sitting, which was intense. And I ended up thinking I didn't really like the story just because I didn't like the way it wrapped up. And that was what was freshest in my mind. But really, there's a lot of good shit here. Yeah, I would recommend if you're going to go back and read this story that you just straight up skip giant size Wolverine Old Man Logan. Let the story end where it ends in the ongoing, and assume as a coda that, yeah, then Wolverine killed a lot of Hulks. But let that be sort of the same kind of vague and whispered legends that the opening is. Mm, good way to put it, yeah. As far as the movie, though, the idea of adapting the general gist of Old Man Logan, this world where everything's gone to hell and where Logan has retreated from it all and doesn't want to be a fighter anymore, that, I think, is brilliant, especially for Hugh Jackman's last outing as Wolverine. One of the changes that... Fox's contract requires that I think is also a really good change. So obviously we're not going to see Hawkeye in this. We're not going to see the spider buggy. We're not going to see deliverance hulks. But I suspect that those changes, that the omission of those things is why we're getting Laura. Yeah, why we're getting Laura and also Professor Xavier. Yeah, I don't care about Professor Xavier. Oh, he looks so old and he's Patrick Stewart. I really don't need another Professor Xavier movie in this cycle. And I, yes, Patrick Stewart is fantastic and I love him, but I am really excited to see a girl stepping into a more prominent position in the X-Men movie cycle. Yeah, and from what we've seen of Laura in the trailers, she looks amazingly cast, amazingly written. Like, this is Laura Kinney. Yes, it's a younger version of Laura Kinney, more along the lines of the one that was in the Innocence Lost miniseries, maybe. But I'm really happy to see that. And God, I hope that she continues in the movies if the movies, you know, aren't rebooted. Yeah, she's tremendous. And I really hope that she's as good in the movie as she is in the trailers and in the little bit of viral fake found footage that we've seen. As you listen to this episode, some of you will already know whether or not that's the case. So uh, we hope it works out. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Xavier Files asks on Twitter, what makes an alternate reality character like Old Man Logan work so well? Why did he resonate when other ones didn't? That's a really, really good question. And I think the answer is that in a lot of ways, Old Man Logan is an intensification of a lot of themes that tend to work very well with Wolverine. He's both a believable extension of the character and he's the character dropped into territory that the main version has never really occupied, which tend to be the two common factors in good alternate versions. 
Yeah, I mean, it would have been easy to do what often Marvel has done, which is to have an alternate Logan be just a Logan who's still badass, just in a slightly different way or with a different costume or with a slightly different premise. And with this, it's something novel. It's something novel, but it's something that feels plausible as an extension or as a redirection of the character. And honestly, I think Logan is at his best in Westerns, dropped into that kind of genre setting. In fact, specifically, and this goes back to the movie, I think the two circumstances it takes for me to build an ideal Logan scenario for me to like the character more than I will like him any other time is a Western and a teenage girl he's mentoring. Hey, two for two in the movie. So yeah, so I am optimistic about Logan because it gives us both of those. All right, Charlie Etheridge Nunn asks on Twitter, what would an old woman Laura series be like? Or old Wolverine Jonathan? Oh man. Okay, see, the thing about Laura Kinney, uh, which is to say X-23, which is to say the current Wolverine. Uh, Don't you mean best Wolverine? Also best Wolverine is that she's taken a way different path in her life than Logan has. I mean, his journey has been one that's largely been fueled by necessity, by doing just what he needs to do to accomplish the greater good or simply to survive, while hers has been fueled a little bit more by self-definition. I think in part just because she started earlier, she started being able to identify as a person rather than as a tool at a much younger age. So you're imagining the Logan thing inverted? Kind of, yeah, because we saw Logan sort of give up after the big tragedy of him killing the X-Men in this storyline. But I almost feel like it'd be the reverse with Laura. I almost feel like she would revert to just doing the rampage as basically step one, going for violent revenge as step one. And then the story of something like old woman Laura could be, you know, her getting past that, her getting back to her better angels, her better qualities, finding and accepting her old strategic and very human self. Teaming up with John Wick to start a no-kill puppy shelter? Uh, Maybe that too. But maybe like becoming a mentor or a leader for some younger mutants or just kids in general, maybe being almost some kind of a mutant spokesperson or figurehead. Like, I would love to see the story taken in just an almost inverted direction from Old Man Logan. Okay, that's all well and good, but um, what about Old Wolverine Jonathan? Okay, so for those not in the know, Jonathan is an actual literal Wolverine that Squirrel Girl gave to Laura somewhat recently in the comics. He doesn't have any superpowers or anything. He's just a Wolverine. That's his thing. But I think Old Wolverine Jonathan, it would be kind of like the Bill the Lobster revenge-fueled rampage at the end of the Fallen Angels miniseries. And then Jonathan would eat a cake and take a nap. Good. Right? So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Everything you hear on the air and everything that you see at our website and video reviews and all that are brought to you by our Patreon subscribers. And some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a range of fictional characters or entities. I believe that today I am turning it over to the Lord and Master of Los... I'm sorry, the former Lord and Master of Las Vegas, now Hammer Falls, Magneto. Mutant kinds dying not to bigotry or war, but from simple genetic obsolescence. Claiming Las Vegas for myself as part of some simplistic heroes versus villains uprising? Being slain by not even the kingpin, but his hollow echo of a successor? Preposterous! Why I, Magneto, the master of magnetism, would just as soon be defeated by such human fools as Matt Elliott and Miranda Patton. When Magneto falls, the very foundations of the earth shall shake. The might of Homo Superior shall be writ large across the history of the world. This future is false. Magneto's story has not yet ended. And mutants shall yet reign supreme. And let's hear now from the angry Claremontian narrator. James, you have faced the end of the world you knew. You watched your comrades fall, Zach Lutz, some even at your own hands. But did either of you ever take the time to consider that maybe it was all your fault? And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Special thanks to the Proto-Men for use of excerpts from the songs Intermission and The Good Doctor. Next week, catch up with our live episode from Emerald City Comic Con with special guests Charles Soule and Dennis Hopeless. Mm-hmm.